you can maintain certain things in that culture which are normative and which celebrates the uniqueness of that culture and yet still be Christian and still be a follower of Jesus Christ. Welcome to The Extra Tent. My name is Ben Cartland, joined here once again by Jason Esposito. Jason, good morning, man. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. It's uh, the last day of October. Yeah. Isn't it? It is. It it's, is. It's, it's Halloween. officially Halloween. It is officially so Halloween. Right. All the different jurisdictions celebrated over the yeah. weekend, or, or many that yeah. I know. Yeah. So took the kids trick-or-treating over the weekend. And yes. They lasted all of, you know, 25 minutes, which is great. <laughs> I, lo- I love trick-or-treating with younger kids because it's 20 minutes and you're back home. Yeah. I think Halloween such a great opportunity to be uh, Christ in the community. Uh, one of the things Amy and I do now, you know, our kids are a little older. They do not trick-or-treat. <laughs> but uh, we'll put out a um, little fire on the driveway, a little okay. fire pit. And we'll do that because actually trick-or-treating in Germantown, the town I live in, is actually on Halloween. It is today. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah, where I know okay. some were Saturday, some were Sunday. Okay. I think Milwaukee is, uh, was Sunday. But yeah, it's tonight. So we'll have the fire out. We'll have some marshmallows. We'll have the candy. We'll have our chairs. It'll be a good time. And it's really a great time to connect with neighbors, to meet people. We've had a lot of transition in our neighborhood. Okay. Uh, a lot of younger people moving in. And so it's just going to give us a great opportunity to start building some relationships with our, our neighbors. So kind of excited about that. I'm, I'm not going to eat one bit of candy in the bowl. <laughs> I'm going to avoid that. I did have one tiny Reese's peanut butter cup. I really lucked love peanut butter and Reese's peanut butter cups, but I don't eat them. I'm trying to reduce that kind of stuff. But I had a tiny one, like a mini one this morning. <laughs> uh, but after that, that's it. So yeah. no, looking forward to the fire tonight, uh, opportunity to meet some neighbors, connect with some people and, and the weather's going to be good. Yeah, it is always nice. You, you end up seeing people that you, you might only see, uh, you know, out in their yard working, yeah. you know, or whatever yeah. in the summer and then yeah. they hibernate all winter and yeah. it's good to, to, yeah, catch up, say yeah. hi, and and reintroduce yourself sometimes. So, true confession, you know, we I didn't ha- we bought a bunch of candy, mm-hmm. but I didn't hand out one piece of candy. Our, our neighbor, so we went trick or treating. Our neighbors have a get together. We kind of went over there right. to eat, right? And then by the time we got back, it was you know it was still trick or treating. But I was like, you know what, I'm tired, and yeah. so I uh, unfortunately I have two full bags of Costco size candy um, that I'm gonna have to somehow consume myself so you can bring it to church i could and i could to the staff and you can true. give it to the staff team and uh but just keep it away from me i also <laughs> bought my candy from costco as well so right. you know definitely helps the candy industry actually it's interesting i know this uh podcast we're supposed to dive into the book of leviticus <laughs> but just as we're talking about halloween i've noticed there's still some discussion in uh churches and communities of faith like should christians like engage in Halloween or not. Mm-hmm. And I find that an interesting conversation that could probably take us uh, to the end of this podcast. But okay. I do think that one of the things, just some principles as we're, you know, just going there or I'm going there yeah. now, didn't plan on this, but is, you know, we, you know, it's true. We shouldn't celebrate darkness. And, and so that, so I do think we have to think uh, wisely about, you know, how we engage it. But I also think the modern expression of like candy and trick or treating uh, is very much uh, separate from some of the other historical aspects of of Halloween. Just like the Christmas tree uh, is, right. you know, very different from in how it's often engaged or expressed or used today as a symbol, 
And ooh, symbol. Maybe symbol. we could go there. This is a bridge. I just yeah, realized it's a bridge. this is a segue to Leviticus. Okay, symbol. Great. So Christmas tree is a symbol. And uh, but it really has roots in something that's not Christian at all. And so I do think there's lots I respect people on, you know, the different sides and opinions and thoughts on it, but I do think there's some broad principles that we can apply to something like Halloween, but also there's an opportunity to engage, you know, community relationships, right. some other things as well. And uh, candy, though not good for us physically, is not necessarily uh, immoral right. uh, from uh, from a theological vantage point. Except that it, you know, it's not good for the body, and the body's connected to the spirit, and 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 those. But that's things. a whole other. But now podcast. we're spinning off. Into so now we have, like but the symbol thing, maybe, you know, we can go there. So you know, I wish I wonder if there's somebody out there who could send us a list of all the things that we said. Hey, that would be a good separate podcast, podcast in right. and of itself. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we yeah. could do a series of the right. spinoffs. So that yeah, we could do a whole conversation. And in some ways, Leviticus does tie into, you know, should we engage. Halloween at all, or should we be completely separate from it, or can we engage aspects of it? Uh, should we have a Christmas tree up or not? You know, those things, I mean, really, and we do have a Christmas tree up, and obviously, as I mentioned, we're going to have not a... now, right? No, like, Christmas tree's not up I mean, literally Halloween no, no, today. No, just no, checking, just checking. No, I just want to clarify, no, no. you know, And we sure are going to sit out and have a campfire and hand out candy and stuff. So, um, but I think there is actually a uh, framework in Leviticus that can help us to now, how do we live as followers of Jesus Christ in a broken, fallen, and fractured world, in the gray, in the muddy? Uh, how can we respect each other's decisions in some area? How can we be people of distinction and also appropriate accommodation for the message of Christ? Yeah, so there, I just took us there. Right, so how you, you spun us perfectly yeah. into Leviticus. So I'll ask the question, is, is how does Leviticus do that? Like, what about Leviticus... Um, allows us to to have that analogy or draw those draw those conclusions. Well, first I think it is important and it's one of the ways that I began the message to recognize that all scripture is God breathed and is profitable. Uh Paul writes that and that includes Leviticus and Leviticus Leviticus was one of the central books in Jewish culture and rabbinic culture and it has so much for us today. Because in it, we more fully discover the holiness of God. We understand what obedience to God looks like. We, in the book of Leviticus, recognize that God speaks and operates within aspects of a particular culture, which normative, but also calls us to be distinct from that culture, which you know I mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, there, there's so much that we can gain from the study of Leviticus. We get a fuller, more robust understanding of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross then doesn't just kind of float in history, but we see how it's part of the story, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of that is uh, embedded in Leviticus. Also, the importance of our own rituals, our rituals in life, our rituals in church, our, our rituals in society. Uh, we see how ritual and symbol, as we've mentioned already, are powerful, and they move us, and they can be a, a positive catalyst in our life or a barrier to fulfilling God's purpose. So just to start at, at, a, at a, a baseline, um, so we're all kind of starting on the same page, myself included, because I did learn, you know, I, maybe something I knew but didn't... Uh, but didn't really register with me about Leviticus, you know, this weekend and, and what you preached. What, what is Leviticus? 
when we read the book of Leviticus, like, what is it? What are we reading? I know oftentimes we talk about New Testament books and it's mm-hmm. a letter from so-and-so sure. to so-and-so or an account of such and such and such and such. Um, I don't know why I had to say such and such and such and such. I was in a rhythm there, but, um, but what is Leviticus? Leviticus is one of the Old Testament books, one of the core five, uh, the original five, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Historically, Moses is the author of those five books, and specifically Leviticus are God's instructions for a broken people to be in covenantal connection with him, to be in the presence of a holy God. And so in Leviticus, you have just law after law about not just how to do worship or sacrifices or engage in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, which is a mobile worship center, but also the things that people should do and the things that that people cannot do. So there's a lot of commands uh, in the book of Leviticus as well. Through that, we talked about, you know, basically they had developed a theology through ritual and symbol and that, and that was intentional. Could you, and and that was a good thing because oftentimes we think about like rituals and symbols um, as not necessarily a good thing. I can speak to different times where there was a ritual that I was like, why are we doing that? And that doesn't make any sense. And, um, but we've always done it that way or that's, you know, whatever, like people have emotional ties to rituals Mm -hmm. and things like that. So we oftentimes think about, you know, rituals in the negative sense, or at least I do. Um, but you mentioned this idea of a theology that they had through the ritual and symbols. So can you explain that, peel that apart a little bit to help us understand how these rituals and symbols um, were actually and can actually be a good thing? Well, let's take it first out of Leviticus, out of the uh, the Jewish story. Look, look at the corporate world, the Nike swoosh. It's a powerful symbol. You see yep. that. It says something, you know, just do it or, you know, athlete, or effort, or discipline. I mean, there's so much meaning attached to that symbol. Or you look at the symbol on a on a, a Mac or on an iPhone, like the apple with a bite taken out of it. Like, there, there's such meaning to that. It says something. It's design. It's... You know, you know, depending on, you know, your 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 feelings on yeah. on all things Apple, you know, that symbol is, is powerful. And the American flag is a very powerful symbol, and uh, we can break it down, and we can talk about the different aspects of it—the stars and the stripes and the colors. But just the flag itself has there's so much emotion and and so much history uh, attached to that powerful symbol. You look at uh, symbols in other religions. You can look at on and on, you know, symbols are powerful and symbols move us, symbols direct us, symbols inform us of deeper truths. Uh, in Christianity, the central symbol is the cross. And it's why in the Germantown campus, we've got, you know, uh, a large cross on the outside of the building. And because the cross is a powerful and necessary symbol, it's a reminder. But also in our tradition, we have the cross that isn't a crucifixion, that doesn't have Christ on it, because it's also connected to the fact that Jesus has risen again. Not that there's anything wrong with having a cross with, you know, with the image of Christ on it. That's a different, you know, that says something different. And so it's really important that we don't uh, jettison symbols. One of the things that happened in the Protestant story 500 years ago was there was a Protestant reformer named Zwingli, and uh, they were trying to clean up some of the perversions of the church. 
And what he did in, in, in that movement is that they eliminated a lot of the images. And, and I understood or understand why they did that, but they, they took it so far as to kind of suppress art and the power of symbol and image in, uh, in the Christian story. And so there can be abuses. There can be a place where it becomes rote, and you alluded to that, or it, it just becomes meaningless uh, you know, it, to you, you know, you lose sight of that. Everybody's wearing a cross or cross earrings or, you know, and those kind of things. And, and that's not the fault of the symbol. That's our responsibility to continue to connect meaning and definition to the symbol and then align the symbol to, you know, that which is true. And then also our, uh, the story of that symbol. So that, 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 that's part of it. We have to continually remind it because even symbols themselves lose, lose and change meaning. So language itself is actually part of, of the, the concept or philosophy of symbols. And so we know that words change meaning and adapt meaning, uh, but they're created in symbols, right? The, the alphabet, are, it's symbols. Right. And so it's all part of the same huge uh, uh, pool of theory, if you want to, if you want to mm-hmm. call it, in which uh, we understand the power of symbol. So we talk about having a, because you specifically said having a theology through ritual and symbol. Um, and I, I want to understand that a little more because it sounds, it sounds good. And, and when I first hear it, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. But then when I really start thinking about it, I don't know if I fully understand what you mean by having a theology through ritual and sure. symbol. Like how does the ritual yeah. and symbol inform our theology and specifically inform the Israelites theology as it's spelled out in Leviticus. Yeah. So you look at even just the five offerings that we looked at this weekend, the five sacrifices uh, in the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus, you know, you look at the meaning of each and in that ritual and in the symbols of, of the animal of the animal that is deemed appropriate because it's, it's perfect or as perfect as uh, it, it could be without blemish. When you look at the grain offerings, when you you look at the the purpose of blood and the sprinkling and purification, blood equals life. When you when you see the peace offerings and and you know all the different aspects, and you, you look at the guilt offering and 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 you look at offerings where it was either food or part of it was burnt up or all of it was burnt up. And then there's smoke and there's aroma. There's all the senses are being engaged in the, the offerings. When we look at those and we understand the purpose and the meaning of those, we, we form a theology of the necessity of some kind of sacrifice to occur so that broken people can be in connection to a, a, a holy God. And it is, in one sense, I think this might have been in the Bible project. I'm not. I'm not sure where I or I first heard this, but and, and you can't take this wrong. What I'm about to say, like, they talk about this. It's a form of theater. It's a. It's a form of acting, but it has power and it's real. And we do live our lives like that in so, in so many different ways. And we can even talk about that economically, like how much you know. You talk about numbers. You talk about the markets. You know, like we kind of create this reality that mm-hmm. it, it's still real. But it hasn't always operated this way. And so when you think of the, the sacrificial system, though it doesn't operate that way today, it was a form of cultural accommodation to uh, create a worship system that connects an unholy people to a holy God. That makes sense in that day, but it's different today. Today we might gather in a worship 
center and you have songs and you have a sermon and you take communion every time you gather together the Eucharist. And it might be in a little, since, since COVID, it's been in a little plastic cup all sealed and, you know, and again, it's, it's a ritual, like a thousand years from now, they're looking to look back and say that that's kind of weird that they ate this little wafer that tastes like plastic and (laughs) warm juice or wine or, you know, on, you know, and so, but there, the meaning is attached to it and it brings us uh, experientially into a deeper truth. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, you, you talked a little bit in, in the sermon over the weekend about how, you know, God kind of operates in a way that's relevant to the culture a little bit. So we were talking about like the different symbols, like, no, we don't animal sacrifice anymore. And there's biblical reasons for that. Right. And we'll, we'll get into that with, with Jesus mm-hmm. sacrifice. Um, but there's a lot of things we don't practice anymore. That was practiced in the old Testament. And there's a lot of things that we don't practice a lot, you know, as in the way that the, the church is expressed here in America, that even 50 or 60 years ago, mm-hmm. that used to be, used to be done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we talk about God being relevant to the culture, does that mean that God changes or the, uh, you know, how, how did, how do we, how are we supposed to, you know, to me, that's a wrestle attention point, right? Cause God's always been the same right. uh, now mm-hmm. before and after he's always going to be the same. Um, but now we're saying God kind of adapts himself to the culture. Mm-hmm. Like what is, how, uh, how are we supposed to kind of wrestle with that dynamic? There's a couple things there. I guess for me, just preferentially, I don't love the word God is relevant or the phrase God is relevant to the culture. I think God speaks to the culture in a way in which they understand, which I know is relevant, but I think that right. word has been so kind of misunderstood sure. and, and misused. And so this idea of accommodate, which some people wouldn't like that word, that a God accommodates to the culture. Sure. We see. Let, let's take it out of Leviticus for a moment. God became flesh and blood. God became man, the incarnation, Jesus Christ. And Jesus spoke the language of the day. He spoke Hebrew, spoke Aramaic. He ate the food of the day. He dressed in the clothes of the day. Jesus was someone who worked. Uh, He was a a craftsman. He was a carpenter. He was a stone maker. He followed the laws of the day. So think about that for a moment. We know that no one can look upon God and live. That's what it says in Scripture. But you could look upon Jesus and live. We know that God is everywhere, but Jesus, as he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, wasn't everywhere. He was an ancient Middle Eastern Jewish male. You know, so all of that is that that is God speaking, communicating, revealing himself in a culture in a way that they would understand. Jesus didn't speak English. Jesus didn't eat lobster. Right. Jesus didn't play PlayStation. Jesus didn't go to the movies, you know, because none of that was around or that right. was inappropriate for that culture. So even the incarnation, God in flesh and blood is an example of that. And so we see that throughout scripture. You can go all the way back to the story of Abraham, uh, Abram, who becomes Abraham. God calls him out to uh, be blessed so that all the world can be blessed. Uh, the father of the Jewish nation, and he tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. Well, you read that story and you're like, that is brutal. How could God even suggest that? And if you know the story, you know that there's a substitute and that he doesn't have to do that. But Abraham wouldn't have thought at that point, Abram wouldn't have thought, you know, wow, um, we... 
you know, God is some brutal God that I can't believe he's asking me to sacrifice my own son because that was commonplace in that culture. So God was doing two things. He was one speaking to Abraham in a way that he would understand that was familiar where there were multiple people groups that would sacrifice their children to God's. It was, it's brutal. It's against God's desire and design, but it was commonplace. So he's speaking initially in a way that he's going to understand. And then he does this amazing thing. Uh, God's like, but I'm not like those gods. You're not going to have to sacrifice your child. And so he both speaks within the cultural, or that which is culturally normative and which Abraham could understand, but then also marks a clear distinction in which I'm not like that. And that's what we see in Leviticus with the sacrificial systems. God does that. And it's what we see today as well. We're, we're constantly trying to more fully understand what do the scriptures look like? What are the transcultural principles like in a culture? So when you look at, I'll, I'll kind of land on this piece here, and you can clarify things I'm saying. Uh, when you look at Christianity as opposed to other, so, several other major world religions, where those religions will they'll, they'll try to change the culture to all look the same based on that religion, especially Islam does this, but you know, other, some other world religions do it as well, where Christianity kind of goes into a culture and it can, you can maintain certain things in that culture which are normative and which celebrates the uniqueness of that culture and yet still be Christian and still be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not trying to change every aspect of that culture, only those aspects of the culture that are not in line with God's commands. And that's all part of how God works. That's one of the powerful aspects of the Christian story. And so it's not that God is changing in character. God is all powerful. God is without sin. God is all knowing. God is ever present, you know, and that, so God is unchanging. He's immutable. That's the theological construct when it comes to his character, but in how he operates, he's always changing. He's always adapting. He's always nuancing how he speaks and how he communicates to a given culture. Now I'll say that with this final statement, and maybe I've said that already. <laughs> you know, he has given us the scriptures, and we call it the canon of scriptures. It's a closed canon of scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, six six books, and so we do need to filter how we are seeing, understanding, and interpreting God acting in culture through scripture to make sure it's congruent with it. So our true source source is still foundationally of the Bible. Yeah, and I think just one, you know, small point of clarification from from something you said a little bit earlier is I think, you know, the intention and the style of of God and Christ is to kind of infiltrate the culture, but there have been Christians in the past that have done a little bit more of the trying to change the culture to match what their identity is, but I think your point was that the it's it's the intent and style of the way Christ was, the way uh, the New Testament church was 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 infiltrating a culture, becoming a part of the culture, uh, a modified part of the culture that that represents Christ. Yeah, I mean, throughout church history, there's been abuses. There's always abuses right. of going in and trying to make the culture more like us and not more like Christ. And so, but the the essence of Christianity can celebrate, you know, how Brazilian culture is different maybe than American culture, which is different than German culture, which might be different than. Chinese or Japanese culture, which might be different than Russian culture, and in which you can be a committed follower of Christ within the different cultures, have some differences and nuances, and still be obedient and following Jesus. And, and that is 
pretty unique in the Christian story, and it ties into all that we're seeing in Leviticus and how God operates. And then, yes, there are abuses across the board, and, and you've seen, you can see that throughout church history. So we've talked about, you know, kind of how Christianity and God is, is relevant, in, you know, before Leviticus, during, you know, the Le- Leviticus times, during New Testament times, and our, tes- and our times. You love the word relevant. Do I? Yeah. Have I said it several times? Oh, good. Well, it's, <laughs> it's right. <laughs> I, I would like to be relevant. There we but go. This is to our point, though. Can I say, sure. like, even a word like relevant, it means different things to different people. And words accumulate meaning to us in such a way that they either become barriers or catalysts for truth. The same thing with symbols. And so someone looks at a particular symbol, it might take them back to something that was abusive or ugly or or problematic. And so definitions are so important and explaining and re-explaining symbols, rituals, and words. Right. So what I, what I was trying to wanting to get into was you 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 introduced this idea of uh, what you what you coined the snobbery of the new. Yes. Right. Where the new. Yeah, I don't know if I coined it, but yeah. Well, okay. You, you yeah, used I it. I used it, it. I'm going to credit you with it. So, don't credit me. I'm sure I read it somewhere. <laughs> okay. Everything I read or heard somewhere. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Um, but this idea of the snobbery of the new, where mm-hmm. we assume that everything new is the best, we assume that everything new mm-hmm. is. Uh, you know, is the most relevant, is the most ideologically and theologically sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not always the case. So can, can you explain, you know, how you look at the snobbery of the new, but then how we should look at things of the past that might have been better than what's new? I think it might have been C.S. Lewis who said that every other book you read should be uh, from a dead person. And, you know, that's not exactly how he said it, but that was the basic idea. And then uh, later, another pastor, I think, said a similar thing. You know, we tend to think that how we do things is the right way, the best way, that everything is moving toward a, a greater ideal. And in some sense, that's the role of the community of faith, the church. We are to be cooperating with God's redemptive, restorative work to the new heaven, the new earth. And so in the power of the Holy Spirit, aligned with the work of Christ and the community of faith, we see that. But in many ways, we're, we're almost de-evolving. We're breaking down over the generations. We look back and we think, oh, you know, the original human beings much have been so uh, unintelligent, and we're so intelligent today. Uh, and that's not necessarily true. And when you study uh, you know, some of the greatest philosophers uh, in history, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, when you study people throughout history and the, and the architecture they would do, and just look at the, the pyramids and look at the, the Roman roads, and we can go on and think, wow, this is incredible. Mahal. Yeah, the Taj Mahal, right. and I've had an opportunity to actually walk in the Taj Mahal. It's incredible. Like it's, it's, wow, I can't believe they did this so many years ago without certain technology, without, you know, big giant cranes. Right. Uh, and so I do think that when you just step back for, for a moment, you realize like just because we might be more technologically advanced doesn't mean we are more advanced. And what, how does that relate to, you know, theology and mm-hmm. practice of church and things like that? Because I know, you know, I know I think the way we do it is – is best, you know, I mean, sure, there's things that I might 
do differently, but in general, I think, and we, I mean, you know, um, both Crossway and, and the church, uh, mm-hmm. as a whole in America, you know, just stylistically and things like that. Um, so what, what are we, what are we missing? Like what, what, how do we apply the snobbery of the new to, uh, the church in America today? I think we tend to throw out some of the rich symbols and rituals of our heritage because at some point they either were abused or they represented something painful or unbiblical or they became rote. They, you know, they lost the meaning and we need to consistently prayerfully, biblically, creatively reclaim those because there, there's a richness to them. There's a power to them. There's opportunity to realize that God has spoken uniquely in different generations, though God is unchanging. And we bring those forward uh, and so it's not that all new is bad either. Some people are like, have, you know, said, well, it, 1942, that's when it was ideal, you know, or whatever, <laughs> right, whatever right. date. And what we tend to, this is what we tend to do, uh, especially in, uh, in, in Christianity, where God impacted us or when God impacted us the most, that's when, uh, that, that's kind of what we canonize. That's what we say, you know, that right there, man, that's, that's real. That's authentic. I'll give you a practical example. So for me, there was this Christian artist named Keith Green. And Keith Green was like so influential in my life. I never knew him, but I listened to his music. I, I read his story. He died pretty young. He was only a Christ follower for a few years. Incredible ministry. And I just, you know, when I want to worship, when I want to really be challenged, like I listen to Keith Green. And it's so, so important in, in my spiritual journey. So years ago, I played some Keith Green music for my kids and they're like, Dad, this is horrible. This is so cheesy. I, we don't like it. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? It's Keith Green. I'm going to dub in You're some Keith Green music yeah. like yeah. Under, under you talking. Right? We actually had a Keith Green song at our wedding. That's how important Keith Green okay. is. Yeah, we played uh, Rushing Wind. But um, How did your wife feel about that? Oh, no, was it was that, great. Yeah. She, she, she didn't mind it. And... Um, you know, and I think we have to understand what that God really used Keith Green at a time in my life when I when I turned my life fully over to Christ. But that doesn't mean that like Keith Green is you know more holy or more biblically sound than uh, you know uh, an Elevation song or a Chris Tomlin song or a Maverick City song or, or you know whoever. Um, and, and so Michael I, I, W. Smith, my, there, there you're kind of going in between Keith in between, Green and that so. Uh, yeah, and and you we, uh, let me give you one example, like a non-church example. So Netflix a few years ago dropped uh, this show called Airwolf, and Airwolf was this show that I watched as a kid about this supersonic helicopter that was hidden in a volcano, and it was silent, and it was it was oh, I loved Airwolf. It was like one of my favorite shows, and it really cool music, dun, dun, you know, all this kind of. Or maybe that was uh, Night Rider <laughs> music, but you know, Airwolf music was pretty cool too. So I sit the boys down on the couch and I say, I want you guys to watch this show. This was one of the best shows when I was a kid. It's an amazing show. We're five minutes into the show. And one of the boys says to me, dad, are you punishing us? <laughs> and I'm like, why are, are you punishing us? I'm like, what do you mean? Am I punishing you? He said, this is horrible. This is so cheesy. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh yes. I remember, you know? And so I yeah. do think that 
you know, we have to remember that, that God uses things at different times. And so there's the snobbery of the new, like it's new is better. Like the music now is better. The technology now is better. How we do church now is better. How we you know do missions mm-hmm. now is better. Or looking back and thinking, no, how we did it back then, it's kind right. of a danger, the danger of nostalgia. We look back and say, that was better. That was more holy. We have to see that there, there was value in that time and understand it and say, okay, what do we bring forward? How do we... How do we change what we're doing now? How do we adapt, you know, uh, you know, whether it's a worship service, h- how we engage evangelism, how we care for those who are hurting, all of those types of things. Uh, we have to get out of our culture. And you only can do that by experiencing other cultures, by reading the scripture, by praying, by being in community where not everyone looks alike and acts alike, you know, so we can push on each other. And yes, as Lewis wrote, and others, you know, reading people from other times. Yeah, I think about an example, you know, my my dad does does leadership training and has for many years. And, um, you know, he read a book from, you know, the 1920s or something like that, that talked about leadership principles. And they matched a lot of what he would be teaching mm-hmm. these days. Um, and he always made the comment, you know, people would say like, oh, I'm an old school leader. I'm an old school leader. And so they would lead a certain way. And he's like, no, really an old school leader. Like if you go way back mm-hmm. to like 1920s or something like that, it's not what you're doing. You're just a, a bad leader is what he would say. But <laughs> right. it's it's true that, you know, you go back and um, oftentimes, you know, reading old things or things from the dead, they ha- they do have so much mm-hmm. relevance today that and even a lot of times. Uh, they're even more well thought out. I I, for, I was on a kick several years ago, um, reading you know Martin Luther uh, and some of the writings that he did you know during the Reformation and stuff like that. And it was it was just fascinating, like some of the insights that he had into different theological aspects that uh, really gave a little bit of rich, richness to to even how I was applying you know my theology and 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 the the bible that i read or you know the what's is, is the bible but the bible and and the, <laughs> you know attending church it just added a little bit of richness to that because it, it contextualized it or put my mind right. in a little bit different of a lane right. in how i looked at those things it was really really valuable so we have to have that perspective when we come to the scriptures when we come to the bible and specifically you know books like leviticus it just seems when you read it like nothing applies to our life today this has no um, value for being a follower of Jesus Christ, but it does. So one of the principles that's important in biblical interpretation is that we always have a framework that we use. So when people say, I just read the Bible, I just read the Bible and whatever the Bible, like that's, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. You, you have a framework, whether right. it's known or unknown, whether right. it's conscious or subconscious, you have, I have a framework that we place on our interpretation of the Bible. And there are some healthy frameworks and there are some unhealthy frameworks. And so we have to understand the framework that we place on biblical interpretation and for this series on the book of Leviticus. And so what we've really been talking about here and some of the message is the framework we're placing to understand Leviticus, to understand the offerings, to understand some of the laws, to understand you know, next week as we get into the responsibilities of the priests and we're going to see some of God's judgment and we have to have a framework. And when we understand that framework and we understand what the Bible is and we understand how God uses the scripture, we're able to then bring it forward to our lives today as followers of Jesus Christ. 
Well, I'm really excited to, to continue to dive into Leviticus, you know, uh, even just what you mentioned about what we might be talking about next week and some of the weeks, you know, later. It's definitely going to be a very interesting conversation. I have to say it's not something I've, I've put a lot of thought into, not a lot of um, work into the book of Leviticus. And so I'm, I'm really excited to kind of peel it apart as, as we work through the next several weeks. I'm very excited about where this journey is going to take us both in the sermons and the podcast and the curriculum and just the conversations through the book of Leviticus. Well, this is The Extra 10. My name is Ben Cartland here with Jason Esposito. Jason, thanks for stopping by this morning, man. Have a great day. Man.